Welcome to the Cultural Life of Money and Finance podcast. This podcast series is based in the University of Leeds, where we're exploring money and finance through the arts and humanities, asking new questions about finance, the global financial system, and financial behaviour in the 21st century. We're looking at how money is being thought about and has been thought about in different contexts. Across historical, cultural, ethical, religious, social and material settings. We believe that how we think about money matters. If we're going to have an informed debate about the future of money and finance, how it should play a part in human lives and societies, we need to understand the big picture of how money can be talked about, related to and represented. So in this podcast series, we're talking with researchers and practitioners from across the arts and humanities to get their perspective on questions relating to the cultural life of money and finance, and on how the arts and humanities can help shape debate on money and finance in the years to come. I'm Matthew Traherne, and in this episode, I'm joined by Alaric Hall, Associate Professor at the School of English at the University of Leeds. In April 2020, Alaric published a book, Utrasarvikinga, The Literature of the Icelandic Financial Crisis 2008-2014, with Punctum Books, which explores how Icelandic novelists and poets grappled with the great financial crisis of 2008. In our conversation, we discuss some of the approaches to finance that were adopted by Icelandic authors, what was particular to the Icelandic experience of the financial crisis, and what we might learn about this cultural response to the crisis of 2008 as we enter the third decade of the 21st century. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So hi Alaric, really good to see you today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks very much for talking to me. Oh, it's a real pleasure. I wanted to talk to you about finance, particularly finance in the year 2020, because you, of course, have written a book about Icelandic responses in literature to the financial crisis of 2008. And one of the questions I suppose that we'd like to explore in our project is how we can learn lessons from what happened in 2008 and in particular to how cultures have responded, interrogated, Mm. engaged with what happened in 2008 and in its aftermath. So I wonder, you know, in terms of the Icelandic literature that you explore in your book, what did you see as the main themes in terms of the reaction to 2008? I suppose if I was going to do three themes, one would be very much that the 2008 financial crisis for people in Iceland, it was a financial crisis, it was an economic crisis, but it was also a um, crisis of what in Icelandic is called the Þjóðarsál, that is the national soul, the soul of the nation. So Iceland became independent from Denmark in 1944. Iceland is a very self-conscious of their heritage as a colony of Denmark and independence seems to come across as quite a provisional thing for Icelanders to this day. So this financial crisis was really the biggest international crisis anyway, diplomatic crisis that Icelanders experienced since independence. Even the Cod Wars in the 1970s weren't really a big deal compared to this. And so for Icelanders, it was partly not just an economic crisis. It was a kind of crisis of the the national self-understanding. 
So that's, that's huge in the literature, as you might imagine, because novelists like to write about the nation. And then correspondingly, another big theme that came through for me writing this book is that writers were really struggling to write about finance. They wanted to. They were desperate to, or some of them anyway, were desperate to write about the financial crisis, but were really struggling to get a grip on the very abstract character of digital finance. So those are two big themes. And uh, I suppose a third theme that lies somewhere in between these is housing and domestic space. So insofar as writers were regularly getting a grip on finance, they were trying to concretise it in their literature, basically, by thinking about houses. No great surprise, because, of course, the 2008 crisis was partly a crisis of housing loans. But that also enabled them to think about domestic space, domesticity, the family and therefore the nation kind of in dialogue with finance. That's really helpful as a way of framing it. And I think also it's it's interesting how we talk about 2008 as a financial crisis. But of course, it, it's something more than that as well, isn't it? Um, right. But just, just to give a sense of the, the scale of the financial crisis as it played out in Iceland, would you be able to give some headlines? I guess the first thing to understand is that Iceland had a high, highly regulated banking sector until the 80s and 90s when Iceland participated very enthusiastically in Thatcherite, Reaganite, neoliberalism. And people often don't understand this about Iceland. They imagine that it's a Nordic welfare democracy. Well, often Nordic welfare democracies are caricatured anyway in at least British discourse. But Iceland is not just physically a mid-Atlantic island. You know, that stands as a good metaphor, really, for Icelandic culture. People are always looking half to kind of Denmark and Scandinavia, but also half to America. Iceland was occupied by the US military for much of the Cold War. Weirdly, Iceland was the US's only conquest in constitutional terms of the Second World War. So that brought a huge amount of American capital into the country. And uh, indeed, American military activity was crucial to really pushing Iceland into a fully monetized economy from being a sort of subsistence farming economy in the early 20th century. So you've got that context there, um, this mid-Atlantic country that really embraces neoliberalism in the 80s and 90s, um, or at least key political decisions embrace that, uh, that culture. There's a lot of dispute and discourse alongside that. So Iceland deregulated its banking sector and Iceland's exports have been based on fish for a long time. So capitalism kind of came to Iceland in the late 19th, early 20th century with the industrialisation of fishing. And uh, a series of changes to how fishing quotas work happened in the 80s. So um, Iceland was running out of fish. The state realised they had to regulate how much fish people caught. And they did so by assigning quotas that were tradable. So what very quickly happened was that lots of individual fishermen had all been given their quota, but they were able to sell those quotas to people with more capital. So people with lots of capital bought up all the quotas and very quickly consolidated the fishing industry, which was a huge social convulsion. And people are still arguing about how to regulate the fishing industry in Iceland. As this happened, though, because quotas were tradable, um, you could also use them as collateral. People started to borrow money, in theory, to buy a better fishing vessel so you can catch more fish, right? People started to borrow against quotas. That is to say, they were borrowing money against the promise of uncaught fish. And so the financialization of fishing in Iceland then led lots of fishermen, essentially, I don't want to kind of overstate this, but more or less lots of fishermen to go, oh, right, if I can borrow against uncaught fish, I can borrow against anything. And so Iceland experienced this amazing banking boom, whereby people started to take huge amounts of credit to buy things like Topshop 
And lots of the UK high street came to be owned by one particular Icelandic consortium. So 2008 came around, uh, banks had enormous debts, foreign debts. Lots of uh, Icelandic domestic borrowers had debts denominated in foreign currencies. There was this belief that the Icelandic krona would only ever get stronger. And so if you believe that the krona will continue to get stronger perpetually, it makes sense to borrow in foreign currencies. And then the credit crunch came and uh, Iceland found itself with domestic banks whose debts were 10 times the size of Iceland's own GDP. And very interestingly, um, whereas in Britain we had the experience of banks that were too big to fail, Iceland's banks were bigger relative to the Icelandic economy. They were too big to save. So the central bank was itself effectively bankrupt. And that meant that Iceland's banks actually all did go bankrupt and, and collapsed, which is really interesting because it's kind of a textbook capitalist, you take some risks and you fail approach to dealing with a banking crisis. And Iceland, by lots of measures, recovered quite well and quite swiftly from what looked at the time like the most extreme banking crisis that was going. That was absolutely fantastic. And I mean, one of the really interesting things in that description is that when we're thinking about financialization, it has many dimensions. So, you know, there's, there's a policy dimension, there's the behavior and the scale and scope of the financial sector itself, but also the way in which financial activities and behaviors kind of infiltrate into both other parts of the economy and into, I suppose, a framing of identity and national identity, as you've described it, but also individual identity, subjectivity, you know, the idea of the financial subject or the financialized subject is something that we're really, we're, we're interested in our project and it's inherently an, an exceptionally important, interesting, interesting thing to think about. Even that model of what happened in the fishing industry where quotas, which are a kind of regulatory device, become financialized and that then spills over into other forms of individual economic activity. And then the way in which that highly leveraged society plays out in sort of cross-cultural, transnational terms with the currency dimension to it. And that fiction, I suppose, that so much financial activity and financial growth is predicated on, which is, you know, currencies can only ever get stronger. For example, you know, that'd be one, one example and, and how a crash can kind of challenge those narratives in the way, in the way that it did. Yeah, very dramatically. Uh, but also really, really interesting to learn about and reflect on that notion of moral hazard as, as an ethical dimension and as something which you know has has been very frequently pointed out in in terms of the sort of mainstream western policy response to yeah. uh, to banks failing or potentially failing but the icelandic model actually you know being more capitalist in, in many ways than than some of those those capitalist societies what you've put me in mind of um, as you were talking about identity and finance is how prominent gender was in both the Icelandic experience of the boom, but also the discourses that followed. So Iceland's a kind of weird country in terms of gender. By lots of measures, it's like the most gender equal country in the world. Good female and male educational attainment, lots of female politicians, currently a female prime minister, this kind of thing. But it's also quite a starkly gendered society and one in which a traditional form of masculinity remains hugely important. And so you had all these people whose background was in fishing or whose kind of cultural model of what manliness was lay in fishing and farming. Then finding themselves in the banking sector or, you know, people just coming up through the banking sector still trying to be read as being manly and, you know, like these fishermen. And so 
Yeah, there was loads and loads of interesting stuff during both the boom and the crisis as people tried to kind of deal with the relationship between masculinity and finance. And particularly in the wake of the crash, just lots of thought about how it was men who'd got the country into trouble. And it really was. It was a very testosterone fueled banking boom. So there's this Icelandic poem, Kwana, uh, which means woman. It's from 1983. because It was very widely circulated in the wake of the crash. In English translation, my English, English translation, it's not a very literary one. It says, when everything has been said, when the problems of the world are weighed, measured and settled, when eyes have met and hands have been shaken with the gravity of the moment, there always comes some woman to clear the table, sweep the floor and open the windows to let the cigar smoke out. It never fails. Poem just did the rounds a lot in the wake of the crash. You've got this idea of women, actually literally in government, you know, in the, the post-crash government was led by a woman who was a lesbian, no less. So women kind of coming in to clear up men's mess that had been made in these kind of smoke-filled boardrooms. I suppose that intersects with some of the questions that you've already mentioned as well around the way in which the, the, you know, the 2008 credit crunch is associated with the mortgage market, where, you know, the idea of home is already a very, is, is, is you know, a very gendered notion. So, so some really important questions kind of emerge from that. And I wonder in the literature that you examine in your book that emerges in the wake of 2008, are these themes being explored? You, you said, you know, writers are sort of struggling to write about finance, or at least grappling with the question of how you how you can write about finance. How's that playing out in the literature? So you can draw a kind of fairly neat distinction between um, crime novels and what we might think of as literary novels, so it's not a very helpful term in some ways. Iceland has got into crime fiction as a genre. I mean, Icelandic crime fiction has existed for a while, but there was really a boom in the early 21st century, partly because writers realised that they'd be able to get translated into widely read languages and might therefore make some money. I don't begrudge writers making a bit of money, able to kind of hitch onto the back of the kind of Nordic noir boom. And so, uh, again, Iceland is often read as being like the other Scandinavian countries. So if something's commercially successful elsewhere in Scandinavia, Icelanders can do it too and package themselves as being the same. Um, So loads of crime fiction came out about the uh, financial crisis. And it was partly just because crime fiction sort of revels in a sort of ephemerality and a a, a version of realism that engages very much with whatever the present cultural moment is. So you get these crime novels that are laden with iPods because, you know, that was the technology of the moment. And uh, uh, likewise, people were like, "Okay, there's a banking boom. Uh, We've got an excuse for some murders in Iceland. I, I say crime fiction, but it's murder fiction, really. It's the only crime that anyone seems to be capable of writing about. So the, the sort of murdered banker or murderous banker becomes a, a, a figure that people try to, to use to um, write about the financial crisis. Grumpily, I have to say that I just found this very unsuccessful. Just the, the banker as a, as a figure to talk about, this actually characterises the literary writing too. It's not a great way into thinking about finance. But people kept trying to do it, to write about the banker who's miserable because he doesn't really care about his work. It all feels meaningless. And, uh, and then everyone hates him and someone kills him. So uh, as a sort of grumpy academic uh, I did tend to look at the crime fiction and, and basically find it quite unsuccessful it was trying to um, do what crime fiction so often does which is to personalize and privatize crime which is usually a social and very complex phenomenon 
and these novels like to try and psychologize crime and make it about kind of individual pathology or individual failings. And so whether you've got uh, a banker who is uh, kind of a nice guy feeling a bit trapped by his fundamentally pointless job and then has his daughter kidnapped because people are trying to ransom her or whether you've got an evil Machiavellian banker who's trying to kill off his rivals uh, because they're in in the way of a business deal either way you you wind up with a form of fiction that is failing to deal with the um yeah the, the social and the diffuse and the complex so crime fiction was one big avenue for trying to write about the financial crisis I, I tend to feel that it missed its mark while at the same time you know you could see that these writers were trying to write engaged social realist fiction you know they were sort of trying but the genre just wouldn't let them do it and then we had kind of literary writing which also often tended to try to write about the crisis by writing about a banker and often struggled for that reason but a couple of the more successful books were really quite avant-garde so i'm thinking of particularly a work called geiska uh, which means kindness by a writer called erikure nordahl that book was quite innovative, partly, for example, because it uses all three persons, first person, second person and third person narration. We used to first person and third person narration in novels. There's sort of whole chunks of this book uh, where one character's life is narrated in the second person. You wake up in the morning, you feel fed up. You try to remember what you did yesterday. You're not really sure. And that gave a really kind of nice insight into the life of someone whose life is being dictated to them by circumstance and so that was a way to sort of talk about the disempowering forces of finance amongst other things so that was one one example of quite an innovative novel another was a, a novel called corner women not to be confused with corner wi- woman uh, by a guy called uh, steinar brahe and corner is a really kind of dystopian horror inspired novel about a woman who um is she's an artist um, a banker lends her a flat to stay in uh, and she finds that she's trapped in this flat and is actually part of a kind of art installation. She's being videoed in this flat and various kind of increasingly freaky things happen to her. The narrative makes it very unclear as to what's actually going on. It sort of becomes obvious that she's become a kind of celebrity through being trapped in this artwork, but is not herself in control of what's going on. So those were ways in which people were trying to kind of write innovatively about finance but it's from a very tangential angle they're not able to grapple with finance directly as such that's such an interesting account and i I think um one thing that really strikes me in the way you describe the crime fiction alongside the other ways of approaching it is that um you know as we saw after 2008 it was quite possible for bankers themselves to be lambasted and yet for nothing to change and yeah. the sort of deeper social structures, the political frameworks, um, the cultural habits, I suppose, um, that actually, you could argue, led to the crash of 2008, were, were in many ways unchallenged, at the same time as you had the bankers themselves sort of scapegoated Mm. Um, in in many respects for it. I suppose that's what becomes really interesting when you think about using, you know, first, second and third person in a novel, where it is at the same time something, you know, finances at the same time, something which can be an impersonal power, something that that disempowers people. But nonetheless, there is a sort of subjective dimension to it. There is there is there is at least a form of financial subjectivity and even financial agency, even if it's can be, you know, very limited and circumscribed and compromised by financialized societies, financialized practices. 
so I, I think that that juxtaposition of the, the you know crime as a, as you say you know the, the way in which the crime novel can entirely privatize um, what crime is as a way of treating something which actually really requires a more a, a rounder um, a more nuanced um, and possibly even that sort of tangential approach that you describe might you know might be the important way in two things that in what you said I, I find very striking. One is that, to my mind, though others might disagree, the most successful writing that came out of the financial crisis in Iceland, at least in the kind of five years after the crisis, which is what I was writing about, I was studying novels that were written before the dust had settled, if you see what I mean. But what came through there is the most successful writing recognises that you need to write about politics to write about the financial crisis. So, so many people wrote about a banker. And it's something else that I like about this book, Gaiska, Kindness, that he writes a lot about politics and he's some of his major characters are politicians who are caught up in this neoliberal moment. So um, recognising that dimension was important. And that resonates with something else that you were saying about how deep-seated and how long-lasting a lot of these structures were. So a novel that I also found it very useful to think about when I was writing about post-2008 Icelandic writing uh, is actually from the late 1940s. And it's an Icelandic novel called Atomstyrðin, which refers to the idea of Iceland, Iceland being brought into the Cold War as a kind of outpost of the USA in a potentially nuclear war. That's written by a guy called Haldor Laxness, who's Iceland's um, only Nobel Prize winner, for literature anyway, uh, and very deserving of it. And Laxness, writing just after the Second World War, just after Iceland's independence, at a time when entry into NATO was being much, much disputed, wrote in that book quite a lot about politics and the politics of Iceland's entry into kind of Cold War politics. But he also wrote a lot about credit, and it's often between the lines or alluded to, but um, the character's based on a person from the countryside, from what was still more or less a subsistence economy, moving to Reykjavik to kind of work in the cash economy. And she talks quite a lot about credit and borrowing money for this and that, and the arbitrariness of the value of currency. And just so much of what Laxness was writing about, about the setup of Iceland's economy and political economy in the wake of independence, just was so resonant in 2008. He'd kind of already written the novel for 2008 in 1948, which is sort of sobering. Well, I, I was—I mean, I was also thinking as you were talking about the rapidity of financialization in right. Icelandic history. So, you know, the the, the relatively recent monetar- full monetization or fuller monetization of the Icelandic economy. And I was curious as to as to what part nostalgia might have played in thinking about the financial crisis. Within living memory, the economy was very different, uh, very, very different even. And I, I just wonder what part that yeah. might have played in, in the Icelandic response. Yeah, so uh, nostalgia was huge and fascinating. I'm just trying to think which of the sort of plethora of examples I should try and draw on. Something that's perhaps noteworthy is that the novels I've talked about so far are all by men. I mentioned a poem earlier by a woman called uh, Ingebjörg Haraldsdóttir, so that's at least by a woman. But a lot of this writing was by men. Female writers were writing, but weren't writing directly about the financial crisis, and they didn't sort of tend to come into my purview. But something that was really prominent in the wake of the financial crisis in real society, but it kind of overlaps with arts and crafts, I suppose, was knitting. So there's this big kind of post-financial crisis surge in knitting. And knitting circles are a kind of long-established kind of social institution in Iceland, but you sort of associate them with your granny. And sort of knitting circles became fashionable again. They sort of became a, a locus to some extent of political activism in the quite febrile years from 2008 to 12 or so. 
there's a, a kind of wool in Iceland known as lopi, which is um, untreated sheep's wool that has only been um, twisted once. So it's very kind of loose wool, which means it's very good at trapping heat, but you have very furry jumpers that leave bits of wool <laughs> over all your other clothes. And uh, it, it's become very fashionable to knit with lopi and to wear lopa pacer, which means a jumper made of lopi. And it sort of became kind of iconic of a sort of hipster Icelandic nationalism but also a sort of homespun nostalgia for the rural and the countryside and stuff in the wake of the crisis. Back when people had to knit their own clothes, no self-respecting housewife would knit with loppy. Um, it was like awful wool, but now it's very cool. But yeah, so knitting circles was one manifest manifestation of nostalgia and, and the kind of prevalence of the loppa pesa. So that's one kind of nostalgic response. And, and there is some novelistic writing that gets very nostalgic too. And uh, as you know, I'm a medievalist. So I actually came to studying modern Icelandic fiction through reading Old Norse, the medieval Scandinavian language. And Icelandic infamously is almost the same as Old Norse because it's changed very little. So you would see writers harking back to medieval texts, sometimes creatively, sometimes not. Kind of interestingly, you'd see writers using medieval texts, but not the canonical ones on which Iceland's national self-image is built. They would choose to look at, um, for example, sagas that were not set in Iceland, but were about continental knights and heroes, and try to write about these bankers as being people who were like uh, ancient princes and kings who would kind of ride roughshod over their uh, feudal underlings and so forth. So um, so it was nostalgia, but there were some creative responses to it as well that tried to draw on Iceland's medieval literary heritage and ideas and kind of re-narrate the national story through older material. And then turning from nostalgia to the future, so the, the time frame of the literature that you examine in the book um, goes from 2008 to 2014. We find ourselves now in late 2020, a year when the world has changed again and the face of finance is changing once again. I suppose reflecting on that Icelandic response to 2008, what kind of things do you think might be helpful as we think about the future of finance and about how we, how we might respond to this particular moment, which of course involves a pandemic and the financial dimensions of that, also growing recognition of the relationship yeah. between finance and, and the climate emergency in particular, new financial innovations that perhaps even in 2008 still seemed a little bit distant, like cryptocurrencies, move towards cashlessness. You know, are, are there things for, for this moment that you can find in the, in the, the post-2008 literature that you've looked at? Yeah, what a question. So that interest in domesticity, you know, remains really pertinent. The housing crisis in Britain at the moment is probably a good indication that uh, capitalism has, and neoliberalism specifically, I should say, has failed in quite profound ways. We've got lots of people in Britain at the moment who are trapped in blocks of flats that they can't move out of because the whole regulatory structure around fire safety collapsed in the wake of Grenfell. And that's sort of analogous in some ways to the situations that are described in these Icelandic novels with people being trapped with mortgages that they can't pay off. And I mean, I was reading The Economist the other day, and even The Economist was saying, look, we need more social housing in Britain. The Economist thinks we need more housing full stop, which is a kind of traditional let the market decide approach. But they, they, they too are saying there isn't enough social housing. The regulation of the housing sector has profoundly failed. And I do think these Icelandic novels are speaking to that experience that just where we live is so fundamental to our lives. It's become so financialized. And one way or another, something has to happen to resolve that, that problem. 
there was amazingly kind of uh, innovative thinking in Iceland in the wake of the crisis with a big national consultation that was kind of prompted by grassroots movements about changing Iceland's constitution. That still hasn't happened, though there are still rumblings about it and there's still a popular desire for a new constitution. And I suppose that reminds us that we can't think about finance without rethinking the structures of governance which create finance. You know, so many markets are really the product of government, even though governments like to pretend that markets just exist on their own. And so that kind of constitutional rethinking would be something that we could pick up on. There was some thinking about cryptocurrency in Iceland as well. It didn't get too far, but blueprints are there in, in post-crisis uh, Iceland for innovative ways of doing things. And then finally, in terms of the literature, I should come back to this novel Gjaiska that I keep mentioning I really like. Lots of people don't like it and lots of people find the author very annoying I've never met the author but in Iceland because it's a very small country everyone knows everyone whether you like the author or not is quite important to whether you like a book anyway I, I don't have this problem with this with this particular novel but um, the author Eiri Kuret is very good at writing novels that um, foresee the next moment he was writing about the rise of nationalism before it really kind of hit the headlines and hit Icelandic um, electoral politics and racism uh, and, and sort of its relationship with nationalism. Uh, and in this book, Gjaiska, the book ends surreally with the arrival of, I forget quite how many, it's like 90 million or something, 90 million refugees in Iceland. They just appear overnight. Uh, Iceland has 350-odd thousand people um, at the moment. So it, it's a crisis of unimaginable proportions. And the politicians in the book have to go through the experience of realising that you can't deport 90 million refugees if you have a country of 350,000 people and you just have to deal with the arrival of this massive humanity. So it's putting Iceland into dialogue with um, the developing world more widely, starting to recognise that Iceland isn't just a post-colonial country but is actually a participant in neo-colonial economics so Icelanders like to think of themselves as victims of colonialism, but in lots of ways they're participants. And so, yeah, it's a novel that was thinking forward from the time of the financial crisis already to think, OK, what else is going to be going on? Huge movements of people. So I'd like to check what Eirik wrote last year. I haven't done it because he's probably predicted the next problem for us to deal with. But, um, but it's at least a novel about finance on a global scale. We have to think about how it's leading to movements of people. We have to relate it to ecological crises and we have to respond with kindness. That is the title of the book. And although it feels very naive to say it, it's hard not to just come back to that kind of moral principle of kindness to fellow humans as we think about how to fix finance in the world that we live in. Lots of the literature I've talked about has been translated, though seldom into English, because the English market for translation is so impenetrable, but often widely available in, you know, Romance languages, Germanic languages, uh, usually some Central and Eastern European languages. Um, Gjaiska itself is too weird a book for it to have hit the uh, translation market. But other works by this guy, Eiríkur, uh, they, they are available and, and he's an author worth reading. Alric, that's been absolutely fascinating and so helpful to get that perspective, both on the 2008 crisis and also on our current predicaments. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, before we were doing this interview, I was really uh, enjoying talking about your wider project. And I'm going to be following this whole series of podcasts with genuine and very considerable interest. This is the right moment for us to be thinking about this stuff. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Alaric's book is available from the Punctum website, punctumbooks.com, both to order and as a free download. 
To learn more about the Cultural Life of Money and Finance project, do please visit our website at culturallifeofmoney.leeds.ac.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at Cultural Money, and you can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or other major podcast platforms. We're grateful to the Leeds Arts and Humanities Research Institute and to the Leeds Creative Lab Scheme at the Cultural Institute for their support for our project. And above all, we'd like to say thanks to you for listening.